Welcome to the second episode of Recap. My name is Brandon Roth. The episode you're about to listen to features a conversation with Jeremy Driscoll from Principal Asset Management. He's been with the firm for over 21 years and has closed over $10 billion of loan volume. Principal is known as a life insurance company, but they offer far more loan programs than fixed rate stabilized permanent financing. It includes construction loans, bridge loans, preferred equity, MES, LP equity, and we cover all of that in the conversation today. So after listening, if you have any questions, please send me an email at brandon at lakebrookcapital.com. Thank you. This is the Recap Podcast. And so Jeremy, appreciate you doing this. I know you've been in the life insurance company lending space for 20 years now, so thought you'd be a great resource for sharing with the market how life company financing works, different buckets of capital available, and and really come at this from an educational perspective. And so thank you for taking some time today. Yeah, Brandon, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, excited to be on with you. I think a lot of people in the market have the perception of a life insurance company you know, offering one product, all right? You know, a core product for stabilized assets, uh, low rate, long-term, fixed rate. I, I think that's sort of the perception. But what's unique to me about principal is you guys are active everywhere in the capital stack, whether it's senior debt, MES, LP equity, you're doing bridge loans, construction financing, permanent debt. So I think principal is a great example of kind of the modern day life insurance company where you have many different buckets of capital and it's not just your own. You're also originating on behalf of separate accounts. Yeah, no, no, that's that's right. Um, and and if you just look at our stable of capital clients, just speaking to private debt, we have about thirteen uh, different clients um, that we lend on behalf of. And I think we were a leader um, in in getting into you know kind of the separate account, separate mandate business when it comes to life insurance companies. We've been doing that since the early nineties when we launched our first separate account. And I know you mentioned other groups, our peers that are are certainly getting involved in that as well now too. But we bring a lot of different you know, like you said, buckets of capital, you know, to the market, I think, you know, people think of life insurance companies and you think of just kind of your sleepy, low leverage core down the middle um, deals. But, you know, if you just look at some of our origination stats, you know, starting from coming out of the GFC, we've done about 8.8 billion of what we call structured debt. And that breaks down into about 7 billion of subordinate debt, which would be, you know, your mezzanine, your preferred equity type investments where you're going in behind a senior lender in the capital stack. And then, you know, the, the remaining amount of that capital being, you know, senior bridge loan. So been very active in that space. And and that's where our growth really is in the company. I think going forward in our real estate private debt will be in that, what we call structured debt space. No, I think that makes sense. And, you know, one thing that you had shared with me was the loan volume you guys did in 2023, which is $2.7 billion, which I think is a great stat to share because most of the market was down substantially, but you guys are still doing $2.7 billion of new originations. What would you attribute that to? Is that based on the, the structured products, for example? Is it mainly within those buckets or is it evenly distributed across everything that you're doing? I would say one area we had a lot of strength. Um, in 2023, and, it, and a lot of this, I think, was the dislocation in the banking market. It was in our construction activity. We did about 800 million of that 2.7 billion in construction lending. Um, with the banks pulling back, we really found an opportunity to put out some construction money. And when I say that, that's you know that's really your kind of 50 to 60 percent loan to cost um, type money, really focused on apartments and industrial. If you have some pre-leasing, we would certainly look at anchored retail. 
but but that's where a majority of the construction capital went. We'll price anywhere from three fifty to four hundred, just depending on the deal. In the LTC, it can be a you know a five year floating rate product, and we saw last year with Sofer being you know uh, much higher than a five year treasury, we saw a lot of group, a lot of borrowers interested in our five year fixed rate construction capital. So we got some traction in that space as well, and then. You know, another bucket of construction capital we've been we've been lending. I think it's a pretty unique to the market is a participating construction loan brand, and I know we've talked about that a lot over the years. But that's a higher loan to cost vehicle, and what that does that allows us to get up to you know eighty five ninety percent of the capital stack. So it's really designed for a developer that doesn't want to bring in institutional equity, doesn't want to raise a lot of LP equity, keep the deal himself, and we can bring in a, you know like I said eighty five ninety percent of the capital stack. You know, we do participate in that. It has a current pay rate of around five, five and a half percent that's capitalized in the budget. And then once the project, you know, starts to lease, starts to cash flow, then lender would participate in in the cash flow and then ultimately in the residual up to as high as 49%. But we see a lot of those deals, the participation piece for the lender, for ourselves is kind of at 35 to 40%. So we saw good activity in that, in that space last year too, I would say. Phoenix is a market that's had some good success. We did some of those in Minneapolis. So some of the markets that have higher return on cost, that that product seems to work uh, work pretty well. And when you're receiving a new financing request for that product, I know we're talking about 85 to 90% of cost, but when you do your internal underwriting, what are some of the other metrics that you're focused on? Does it need to hit a certain uh, you know, debt yield, for example, or are there some cash flow guiding metrics beyond just loan to cost? Yeah, there is. You know, we're focused on a, an internal rate of return to start out with. It, it's got a minimum look back IRR of 8% for the lender. That's how it's structured. But ideally with where the cost of capital is, they were trying to achieve 11% IRR or better on our underwriting. Um, so, so it needs to start there. And, you know, who, who knows exactly where cap rates are today? Your guess is as good as mine. But um, you certainly probably need to have a return on cost close to six and three quarters to 7% in most markets because a lot of the juice in these deals is in the residual. So if you're underwriting, you know, five and a quarter, five and a half percent exit cap rate, that's where you're going to get the juice on the return. So that's where you need the return on cost to be, like I said, six and three quarters, seven percent. So that would be another, you know, thing when we're initially sizing these deals in addition to loan to cost. And that's going to put a governor on loan to cost. I would say getting to 85, 90 percent today is pretty hard. Ideally, it's probably closer to 75, 80 percent in today's world. Right. That makes sense. And going back to your comment about a five-year fixed rate construction program, can you talk more about that? I think that's unique in the market in terms of how you're pricing it. I yeah, know five-year yeah. treasury plus some spread. Exactly. And, and I assume you're, you're uh, meaning the construction capital. Yeah, is that right? right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it would be similar. You're going to be you're going to be pushing high twos, low threes on that on that money. So it'll price similar, uh, maybe, maybe a bit tighter than, than, the, than the floating rate stuff. But yeah, it, it's very popular because I think, uh, you know, Markets are moving pretty fast right now, volatility. But you know, I think the five-year treasury is you know, over 100 basis points inside of where SOFR sits today. So just out of the gates, you're getting a better fixed-rate index. You don't have to mess with a SOFR cap, groups like that. Your cost mm-hmm. of debt's pinned down and takes one one variable off the table. There's enough variables when you're when you're developing a deal. So groups like that, it is locked out to prepayment during during the construction period. And then after after that, we can usually do some kind of declining prepayment. I, I will admittedly, we're, we're not quite as good as the banks are in prepayment. We're asset liability matched at the life insurance company. Mm-hmm. So we do have to have pretty good amount of call protection. So um, that's probably one area where we'll, we'll, we will fall short of the banks. 
Yeah, but you have a lot of other things to offer, you know, as uh, alternatives to the banks as well, especially from a non-recourse perspective and also not requiring deposits. From my perspective, those are the two main challenges right now on the bank market. And most banks are looking for about 10% of the loan amount in deposits. And the vast majority of banks are recourse lenders requiring some form of repayment guarantee. Yep. You hit on it. Yep. But yeah, being non-recourse is definitely an advantage. Just, just requiring the completion guarantee. Um, yeah, obviously we're not chasing deposits, um, trying to cost cross sell products here. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely an advantage. And then, you know, no syndication, we, we can do construction loans. We've got several different clients. I mean, we have one client that's been active in the past that can do, you know, construction loans up to 300 million, but our, our kind of our sweet spot's 80 million and under no syndication risk. We, we manage it all here principal. It's not outsourced. I would say that's one other thing too, just to touch on about principal. I mentioned where most of our real estate staffs based in here in Des Moines, which is unique, I think, in in a good a good thing. Our servicing team sits here. We service about twenty five billion of of private debt mortgages that we've originated. So that team's on my floor. So I'm involved in the life of the loans that I originate. In in times like this, you know, where there's things come up, problems come up with loans, we're still involved. The person that originated a deal, it doesn't get sold off. I think groups like that. There's a personal touch there. We can sit down, have a conversation, you know, if there is a challenge out of deal or, or something just needs to be modified, uh, how the loan was structured. So we also have a closing department here at Principal too. We close a majority of our loans internally. Um, groups like that um, have a dedicated closing staff. A lot of times we can fix our closing costs, which groups like, you know, send it out to outside legal that sometimes you can rack up a pretty big bill just depending on, just depending on how, um, how the negotiations go. So just a couple of things that I thought were worth pointing out. And I think, you know, we're traveling to our markets. For example, I, I, I focus on the Bay Area. We're traveling there, depending on the workload, you know, probably once every six to eight weeks. But our decision makers are here in Des Moines. So if we have a transaction we like and want to move pretty quick, you got a sponsor that needs to move, whether it's acquisition financing or a construction loan that's got to move pretty quick. We can make that decision, you know, in probably less than 24 hours. Just having a couple, you know, discussions here at principal. So we think that our execution and, and ability to move pretty quick on deals uh, is another advantage for us. Yeah, everybody's looking for you know speed of execution and certainty of execution. And I could say from firsthand experience, you know, principal has been great on both fronts. Going to the build to rent space, that is a you know an asset type that is still in high demand from LP equity investors, where it's you can find deals penciling to a six seventy five and seven return on cost where. In the traditional multifamily space, it's much more challenging to get to those levels. So if you're brought an opportunity to provide construction financing for a, a build to rent development, you know, what is principal's internal stance on that asset class? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. You know, our equity guys are there. They're investing in 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 the single family for rent um, project. So that that's helpful. You know, typically we don't lend on stuff we wouldn't own, you know, in case worst case scenario you do end up having to own it. But we have not done one yet for a construction client yet. Um, I think we're going to get there. We've had, we're having discussions with, with some of our clients about, you know, pivoting to that asset class and, and making it, um, you know, part of our menu that we can offer. So probably more to come on that. Um, I would, I would think in the next year, we'll, we'll probably start to start to do some build for rent projects, but just, just have not done any um, to date. Right. And then, so let's pivot from construction to your bridge lending space. For bridge lending, are there certain asset classes that you're primarily focused on? Yeah, yeah, not surprising. Industrial, multifamily, I think, are definitely the the um, the sweet spots for us in terms of product type. De- definitely re- retail. We're open to retail, especially if you got an anchor involved. 
but grocery anchored, um, soft goods, probably a little more challenging, but yeah, right now office, it's, we just don't have any capital clients willing to pursue office at the t- at this time. You know, maybe that'll change over time. I, I personally think it will, but it's going to take some time. So yeah, we're focused on industrial multifamily. We're, we're finding some opportunities there. You know, there, there are some, some tough capital stacks that are either deals that got financed in 2020, 2021 or coming off construction. We're seeing those opportunities to provide our, you know, either our bridge capital or we provide a whole loan or we come in with a mezzanine or a preferred equity piece too behind it behind a senior lender. We're, we're definitely starting to see those opportunities in the multifamily and industrial space. And I think there'll be more of those as the year goes on. Some of these other deals start either come to maturity or, or roll off their construction. Uh, we think there's going to be more appetite uh, for that capital. I completely agree with you. I mean, there's thousands of units under construction and going through lease up and there's many deals across the Sun Belt, especially where they're going to need these, you know, construction takeout loans. Uh, to buy some time to go through the lease up process. And you mentioned whole loans, mezzanine financing, and preferred equity. When you're thinking about those three different capital sources, does it change anything uh, with respect to leverage or do they all kind of tap out at the same level? I think it's going to be a little bit different. Um, you know, like a lot of groups, um, this is for our, our debt fund. Uh, previous to launching an open-ended debt fund, which we launched last year, we'd, we'd done a closed-end uh, series of funds. We did three closed-end series of funds. Which I just talk about that because it's it, it's uh, it's good and it, but it is challenging sometimes because you're kind of starting and stopping with our open ended fund. We, we plan to be in the market working or um, you know kind of continuously not starting and stopping. But yeah, in terms of leverage, you know, uh, just give you an example. We worked on a um, a pref equity deal behind a, a senior lender, another life company actually, and um, we provided uh, the pref equity up to seventy five percent last dollar LTV on that deal. And I think that'd be similar to where our um, you know, if we're structuring as mezzanine or prep equity, probably where we're going to tap out. Maybe, maybe for the right story, get a scotch above that, but uh, that's probably where we're, we're going to tap right now is 75% LTV in that space. And then if you look at bridge space, it's probably going to be more cash flow constrained because we are using some leverage there to make the returns work. So you're probably, you know, high five, uh, low six debt yield constraint more than LTV is probably where it's going to tap. And then you're going to need some kind of interest or a combination of an interest reserve and a SOFR cap, you know, to capitalize that to make sure you have coverage until, until you know, either the property can lease up or concessions burn off or what have you to get you to a point to where you can um, get cash flow from the property. So, and then, you know, on the bridge space, we're also looking at how do you exit these deals? I think, you know, we'd like to see an apartment deal on the West Coast probably stabilizing out over an eight debt yield. So we feel like we can get out of that transaction once, once it's built or once, you know, once the business plan's realized, whether again, through concession burn off, lease up, what have you, just want to make sure we feel good about the exit. Right. And when you are looking at a deal that has a high fives in place debt yield for your underwriting, how are you calculating NOI? Because the agencies, for example, will be backwards looking on maybe a a T3 income from an insurance company perspective. Are you looking at the current rent roll? Yeah. You know, we don't have the, you know, the rigid standards. I think the agencies have, you know, we can, we can kind of think a little bit outside the box. You know, that said, we're not doing any pro form underwriting. I, I think if it makes sense that you got a path that they maybe had a month of heavy concessions that they were up front, they're going to burn off. Yeah, we, we can look through that and think through that and maybe look at a rent roll, like you said. So so we there is some subjectivity on how we underwrite that. It's just, it's kind of deal dependent. You know, if, if it deals, you see trailing, you've had concessions and rents declining, 
month over month, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to make a case, you know, as soon as we close this loan, all of a sudden you're gonna pop rents to where the rent rolls at. So it's a little subjective, but I would say we can think a little bit outside the box there, you know, a little different than how the agencies are gonna look at it, have a little bit more flexibility on on how we underwrite those deals. And when you are looking at these multifamily deals where it's in place six debt yield, stabilizing above an eight for, you know, a brand new project that's in lease up, for the deals that you've been quoting, is there a kind of guiding range you can share? Is this, you know, a low threes to high threes kind of bandwidth or, or where would it fall typically? Yeah, I think our best pricing uh, on the senior bridge space is, is going to be, you know, I think we've priced one as tight as 285 and that's going to range up to about 330 over so far. I don't want, you know, usually tell somebody that they gravitate right towards the 285. I only heard 280. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, but you know, to get that pricing, it's it's cash flow driven. Like I said, we are using some leverage. So, the better the cash flow, the better they're going to price. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's what's going to factor into that um, pricing, right? And like typical debt funds, are you going to large banks to provide warehouse lines on these deals that you're going to be using post closing? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And we'd be having those conversations up front. You know, you talked about the underwriting, some things you might be able to do. On the senior home loans, we're going to have to, you know, obviously walk walk the lender, the, the warehouse lender through that. So they're going to have to understand how we got to that number. So yeah, like I said, that having relationships there is important, especially right now. I think we're we're expanding our relationships in that space, so that's a positive. But yeah, yeah, you know, you got to think to the underwriting and how and how they're going to look at it. Make sure you can, you know, tell them the story and how you're underwriting that, underwriting the transaction. That's right. And I wanted to cover your core bucket as well, but before jumping into that. For people who aren't familiar with traditional life insurance company programs, can you share how that's typically priced? And what I'm thinking about is the CM1, CM2 ratings, you know, pricing, tracking the bond market. Uh, can you dive into that a little bit to just give a brief overview to people who are unfamiliar? Yeah, yeah. I, I got to be honest with you. You know, uh, before I got into this industry, I had no idea who owned commercial real estate. And then you come to find out that life insurance companies are a big, big player in this space, both debt and equity. But um, it's a nice asset to have for life insurance companies. I mentioned we're asset liability match. So, you know, we, we put a liability on the books. You can, you can turn around and, and find a commercial mortgage loan that can offset and, and earn premium over what you sold that liability at. And the liability is, um, like I said, it's a five, seven, 10 year. So it matches well for a commercial mortgage. And, yeah, we, we do. We are very relative value focused. I would say based on what I've seen in my 20 years here, we're probably more focused than other groups. We're pretty quick to react to how the market's moving. We, we look at corporate bonds. We're competing with our general accounts money, right? I mean, we've got fixed income. We've, we're building out our direct lending business. Um, we invest in ABS. So, you know, if, if mortgages aren't providing good relative value, then they'll move the money to, to the other products that can provide it. So we're very focused on that. It's not just as easy as saying, Hey, Brandon, we're working on a deal. It's going to take 10 to win. I can go out with five minute conversation, lower 10. Unfortunately, I can't do that all the time. Sometimes we like to do that, but just doesn't allow. So yeah, yeah. Very relative, relative value focused. All of our uh, insurance clients are, we, we represent, you know, not only our general account, but several domestic and non-domestic life insurance companies. And and they think about it the same way. And then you mentioned CM um, seems to be a term that people are getting more familiar with, but it's really how life insurance companies look at risk-based capital. It's kind of an interesting way, the way it gets calculated. But if you just look at a coverage ratio perspective, what they're doing is they're taking the actual note rate from the loan, putting it on a 25-year amortization schedule, whether the loan is on a 25-year amortization schedule or not. It's a hypothetical 25-year am. And then solving to a coverage ratio. So if you're 
above 1.5 times debt service coverage on that 25 year AM, you're CM1. So you'll get best pricing treatment. If you're below that, um, you're called what, what's called a CM2. And, you know, it used to not be such so much of a focus when rates were so in, so low, everything was a CM1, but now it's getting stressed quite a bit. And then if you fall below 1.0, you get into another category called CM3 and you don't want to be there because it's just almost impossible to price a mortgage if you're in CM3 territory. And you got to be careful for drift, you know, within your portfolio. We're watching that all the time too. You know, you think a loan maybe one time was a CM1 or a CM2 and now you lose a tenant and now all of a sudden you're CM3. That, that's not good. That has consequences for, you know, the insurance company in terms of the capital they got set aside. So we're definitely thinking through that. It's top of mind on every on every deal um, that we underwrite. And my understanding on how it impacts pricing is that if somebody was trying to get to a spread maybe between 1.4 to 1.7%, they need to fall into a CM1 bucket. But if you fall into CM2, the pricing there is typically 1.8 to 2% spread. Is, do you think that's fair? Would you make any adjustments to that? No, that that's it. That's it. It's uh, you know, for us, it's twenty five to thirty basis points depending on the client. If you're going from CM one to CM two, the one thing it does get looked at every year, and it's it's a I don't want to get too far into how the sausage is made here, but it's a it's a weighted average over time, and and it gets it gets recalculated every year based on the loan balance. So what I, where I'm going there is it could start out. You could have a loan starts out at CM two. And based on your underwriting, you think it gravitates for CM1. So then we could prorate the add-on versus just hitting it all with that 25 to 30 basis points. If you think your loan's going to gravitate from a CM2 to a CM1, maybe you got contractual rep bumps in there. Maybe a deal's got heavy amortization. So you can get better and, and we can we can think through that and um, adjust pricing accordingly. But yeah, you're definitely thinking about it correctly. You know, and one thing that I thought was interesting, and this is the last comment on CM ratings, but as you're looking at lease-up deals, you know, it was interesting to me to learn that the CM calculation can use reserves that are set aside as part of the NOI for calculating the debt service coverage ratio. And hopefully I'm explaining that correctly. But we had closed a deal that was about 30% leased. And the reason we were able to do uh, 10-year fixed rate pricing was because there was a an account set aside for reserves in order to qualify for the CM2 rating that will get released once the NOI matches that that same amount. Yeah, spot on. Structure can help you. We we did a deal, apartment deal in Northern California a few years back, and we did exactly that. It was a lease up. We really liked the deal, wanted to lean in. It was a CM3 as, as the cash flow was today. We held back what we called you know, an interest reserve, structured it, and held that until they got the NOI up to where it needed to be to get comfortable in CM2 territory and then release those funds back to the borrower. So that's another way to, yeah, to, you can structure out it. And before moving on from this conversation about the different buckets of capital, you know, I did receive a question from somebody on LinkedIn that they wanted me to share with you. <laughs> um, All right. They said, what stress tests are you applying to stabilize NOI to ensure a reasonably liquid exit? And so for me, that really you know, comes to your construction and bridge buckets. You know, what are you guys doing to scrutinize a, a developer's pro forma to feel comfortable that you're going to get refinanced out in three to five years? You know, we're, we're, we're you know, one thing that's getting scrutinized quite a bit, and I think just because you've seen expenses rub so much, operating expenses, we've really been scrubbing those quite a bit, stress testing those. I, I wouldn't say there's just a black and white percentage we throw at a pro forma and, and stress it. We kind of dig in, go line on it by line on it. This is where it comes back to our equity, our equity folks own properties. We can look at their their comps, get comps in the market. But the expenses are somewhere we got to dig in, especially on multifamily because, you know, there are no triple net leases. Those expenses go right to the bottom line. So we're spending a lot of time on that. 
rents, um, certainly stressing those. We don't tend to trend rents on our um, multifamily properties. Uh, we, we underwrite what's in place today. So I think there's kind of some implied stressing right there. Um, so that's how we look at rents. Um, and then we're, we're very focused on supply when we're doing construction, construction lending, you know, what, what's coming online, what could derail us, thinking through, oh, we got enough lease-up concessions, enough interest reserve in the budget. If lease-up takes a little bit longer, maybe get offer more concessions. All things we're looking at when we're underwriting construction loan today. I think the one thing that was getting talked about a lot, maybe not so much anymore, was everybody a couple of years ago, I remember, just laser focused on cost. You got enough cost, you got enough contingency. Seems like that subsided a little bit, and now people are more focused on supply, your rents, and your operating expenses. And given how much construction lending you're doing and how many different budgets you're seeing across the country, are you seeing any trends regarding construction costs coming down? Because I'm hearing some anecdotes from different developers that they are seeing costs come down in certain markets. Yeah, yeah. You know, personally, I I, I didn't originate a construction loan last year, but I have a couple that are um, getting near finish to the finish line that started a couple years ago. And all those deals are coming in on budget, if not inside a budget, which was almost unheard of the past, you know, five, seven years. I'm on almost every deal ripped right through, right through the, the project budget, ripped through the contingency. Obviously, where you've had some pain is, um, you know, if you're doing a floating rate loan, I don't think anybody underwrote SOFR going up to 535, you know. So you've had to have some conversations around, you know, rebalancing interest reserve. Some some of that stuff's come come into mind on a lot, on a lot of deals that were SOFR related. But yeah, I mean, what we're hearing just anecdotally, costs are definitely stabilizing, maybe coming down a bit. I don't know if contractors are starting to look at their pipeline, subs are starting to look at their pipeline, maybe getting a little, a little quieter. Um but, but yeah, but hopefully that's a positive that the costs start to start to, to come in. And, and I think that's a natural I mean, part of the I think that's a natural part of the cycle, right? As interest rates have gone up and pushed cap rates up, it's much more difficult to raise LP equity, which is restricting the amount of new supply that's coming to market, which is then leading to construction costs coming back down as subcontractors have, you know, a fewer projects to work on in their pipeline and they're being more aggressive as they're bidding new deals. No, that that's that's definitely fair. And if we don't mention, you know, a borrower name or identify a property, are there any recent case studies we could talk about? Maybe, you know, deals that you're currently closing or anything you've quoted recently that would be interesting to hear about? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, this maybe touch on core real quick. Core has just been really tough. You know, I think I touched on earlier on not, not a lot of transaction volumes going on. We're open second half of the year. That may pick up some of the, um, you know, open and Odyssey funds start to bring deals to market, meet some of the redemption queues, kind of starts to get the engine going a little bit here. Again, I mean, that's what we're hopeful for anyway. But, you know, there, there are some good core opportunities out there. And, and the ones we do see are really competitive, whether it's a low-leverage self-storage deal, it's a low-leverage multifamily deal. Most of these deals are just coming off an existing loan. So those can get really competitive. I mean, uh, we've seen spreads as low as, I've seen some competition notes as low as 135 to 140 over for these kind of down-the-middle multifamily deals, call them 11, 12% debt yield. So the core space, there's liquidity there. If you're not, if it's not office, there is a lot of liquidity in the core space. Transitioning to um, maybe what was the other, what was the other part of the question? Yeah, you know, no, it's just a- asking about interesting case studies. But on the comment about a deal being as low as 135 to 140 spread, I just want to take take that back to the previous conversation we had about the CM ratings, right? Because to me, what I think about then is that's a CM1 rated asset, right? So it's really getting a 1.5 DSCR using 25-year amortization. And that's why it needs to hit that 11 to 12 debt yield in order to get to the 135 to 140 spread. Is that fair? You nailed it. Yep, you nailed it. And, and sometimes we will see 
Um, it won't be principal because, I, like I said, we're laser focused on the calculation. Sometimes we'll see maybe a peer lender, maybe they want a deal. You, you don't know how they're thinking behind the scenes, but they'll, they'll step up and we think it's a CM2 and they'll price it like a CM1. You occasionally might see that. Uh, maybe they're looking at it more on portfolio basis. So, but yeah, you're right. I mean, if you're going to get top tier pricing, you need to be in that 11 to 12 uh, debt yield space. But yeah, you know, transitioning from deals that I think are interesting outside of core, um, I think I touched on a little bit. We're starting to see more deals come to market, um, rolling off construction loans. We closed the preferred equity opportunity in Northern California about 30 days ago. Really good deal we liked. Um, would have been a deal probably, you know, three or four years ago, there was no opportunity for preferred equity, just given more mortgage pricing would. It probably would all got done in the mortgage just because of low rates and it allowed for coverage and, and they could get it done. But um, so we're able to come in, go, go behind another life insurance company. We, we've done, you know, um, MES or preferred equity behind 30 some different lenders, including the agency. So I think groups like to have us in there because we do have the ownership experience, um, you know, necessary. They, you know, we understand we're not just a, just a fun shop with a few people around it. You know, if, if times get tough, um, we have the capabilities to step in and own. So I think we're going to see more of those opportunities going forward. Uh, we already are seeing them. Um, and I think, as you pointed out, I think going to see more of those deals, you know, coming to market. So we're, we, we've been trying to right now, very active in raising new capital, kind of in that, uh, you know, rescue capital space to come in to help fix some of these broken capital stacks, whether it's raising more equity for our open-ended fund and some other stuff behind the scenes. But you've definitely seen our clients, whether we got some existing equity clients have actually reached out to our debt side to talk about, hey, can we can we get involved in some of these pref, pref equity deals? We've had some pension funds reach out to us wanting, you know, talk about some new mortgage mandates because with the increase in rates, all of a sudden, you know, some of these actuary assumptions, some of these groups rounds are return thresholds. They need work within a debt product and you don't have to take the equity risk. You got a debt cushion there. So we're starting to see some of that, which is encouraging. So I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that um, more capital will come to the space and um, you know, I'll have more money to bring to the market. And we talked about pricing for core and bridge, but we haven't talked about pricing for preferred equity. Can you share how you guys are thinking about sort of the low and, and high end of that range? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I touched on it. You know, we're, we're probably a 75% max LTV here in that space. So I think we're willing to, you know, I think we've seen other groups get up higher than that. And, uh, you know, they want that extra bit of risk premium. And I think that, you know, then you're starting to talk 12, 13, maybe 14%. But for where we're wanting to play, you know, kind of 75%, we, we want to see some level of current pay. Um, we'll do some accrual, but we like to see current pay. It can price anywhere, you know, probably maybe it's goes under 11, but probably 11 to 12% is how we're pricing. Yeah, I think that's very competitive. And I think the market, like you said, is typically 12 to 14% because most of this capital is raised with a about a 15 average IRR in mind for the fund. So there'll be some lower, some higher, but blending to about a 15. But if you're telling people you're going to be inside of 12, I think that's, you know, an attractive and competitive space to be. You know, some of the deals we work on too, you know, across the country, it's been you know, and sponsors are coming to the table with part of the solution too. They're bringing equity too, which is good. I think that recommitment from them is important too, you know, versus just trying to roll over the existing debt, get get every, you know, every dollar they can out of it. I think that that's helpful too. And so talking about loan modifications, since you've put these deals on either warehouse lines or an A note, or you have some sort of senior leverage behind the scenes, how much does that group impact the loan modification? For example, if it's a bank, and you want to modify the loan and extend it, do you need to go to that bank and get approval for it? Or what impact 
do they have on the ultimate modification? Yeah, I, th I think we, we try to do a nice job uh, managing that across the portfolio uh, within our funds. So, you know, I know one of our funds, we've been thinking through that a year or two ago and, and started to pay down some of the warehouse lines, um, you know, trying to get out from it. Best we can, you don't always have that. You don't always have that advance to be able to do that. But yeah, you got to, you got to, yeah, you're going to have to be talking to your warehouse funder, talk through the business plan. They're, they're all over it. We're getting questions all the time from them on properties, you know, cash flows. So yeah, they're a part of the conversation. Yeah, it's not just a hey, principle. You got to do this. You know, we, you know, any any loan that we put on our warehouse fund, we got to be thinking through how the warehouse funder is going to handle it. You know, how we're going to how we're going to continue to service that part of the capital structure too. So yeah, it, it's definitely part of the conversation. And I've been trying to think about this uh, because in 2023, lenders were so willing to modify and extend loans, and. I'm wondering, does that change in 2024? Do you get to a point, for example, where maybe the banks say, hey, we really need more liquidity because deposits are are moving around to some of the larger banks and they now want their warehouse line paid down or they want their A note repaid? You know, is that what's going to ultimately impact uh, you know, fewer debt funds willing to modify their existing bridge loans? Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Just just limited liquidity in the market. Yeah, I think we're already seeing that. That there's not, you know, there's not the takeout solutions that normally have been having at the banks um, being as active as they had. So, yeah, you're definitely see. I think there's we've had some loans in our books that probably in normal times would have been a little bit refinanced out. But um, it's just meaning, you know, you know, you have to do some extensions back to you know trying to find a path forward that works for both sides, and also the borrowers bring it, able to bring some equity to the table and. And you can get to a better day when, you know, hopefully banks are have more capital to put to work it, and there's more, you know, the more liquidity. I, I I still see pretty good liquidity for everything outside of office, especially if you have a good product type, uh, you know, a class A multi, for example, or class A industrial. You know, we did a construction loan in 2020. It came off, it came up from maturity, you know, great project, beautiful, built it, uh, built it right, work, right where you'd want to be. Just never got a tenant, uh, and they're they're, they're going to get a tenant, but um, we want to pay it off, and you know, seven eight different capital sources all over that deal, vacant uh, industrial building. Just to give me an example, so there's liquidity there. I think if you got the right asset, um, right location, right borrower, those deals can get solved. Office is the one that's just it's really tough right now. It's just because there's not much liquidity, it, it, essentially no debt liquidity. Maybe a few groups are starting to look at them again selectively, but. You look at how the equity is underwriting these deals and, you know, you're talking four-year lease-up periods, you're talking 20% IRRs, I mean, and and they got a plethora of deals to look through, right? I mean, they've got how many office deals are upside down. They just got so many opportunities to think through. So it makes that product type challenging. That's why I think it's a lot different than the GFC going through that. Um, there was just no liquidity at all, period. It didn't matter what you had. You could have a 20% daily apartment. I mean, it's just, Nobody was lending. Everybody's trying to hoard liquidity. Given the situation, this time there's money. I mean, there's debt. If you, like I said, apartments, industrial, self storage, you can find you can find capital. Right, and that was one of the takeaways from NMHC. Everybody this year plans on being a net buyer, but the challenge is none of them were net sellers, right? And so, where does the transaction activity come from? Because it's not likely going to come from a you know, willing seller, uh, like a discretionary sale, if you will. It's m probably more from distressed situations where somebody has a loan maturity and the lender's not willing to extend and it's more of a forced sale. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, that that's going to force deals to market. Um, you're already seeing that like downtown San Francisco, you're starting to see office buildings get reset. 
I think that's unfortunately is a lot of capital being lost, but I mean, it's going to have to be a healthy reset on some of those, on some of those, um, you know, markets where they're just so upside down right now. But, um, I think the other thing too could be interesting too is you heard Blackstone talk a little bit about it, just beating their redemption queues, starting to bring deals to the market. I think other Odyssey funds start to do that. They just have to bring deals to get liquidity to pay out investors. And then that starts to reset. Then all of a sudden, you know, one deal trades down the street, the other one, now you got a comp and another deal trades. I'm hopeful get some traction there. And deals will deals will start to move again, at least right. bring more volume for us to finance. Yeah. And so as you think about the remainder of this year, what do you think is going to be different in 2024 compared to 2023? Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're getting closer to the bottom. Um, it sure feels like it. I think groups, you know, who knows when the Fed's going to cut. I don't think anybody knows, but I think at least people feel pretty good that we're, we're increasing you know, policy increases, interest rate increases are done. So that's helpful just to underwrite deals, right? If you, if you can at least put your finger on where's the 10 year at, you know, we're, where can I price debt? I feel like if people can get a handle on how you price debt, that's going to allow them to price the equity, um, and we can get things going. We'll get go, get going again. Get the transaction going again. So hopefully, as the year goes on, get more clarity from the Fed. Hopefully, we'll get some cooler inflation reports and kind of get the transaction engine kind of revved up again and get it going. That, that's what I'm hopeful for. 2023. I, I just don't think you could do that. You didn't really get an indication how how high rates needed to go to to tamp down inflation. And so this morning, CPI data was released that was higher than expected. And now the five-year treasury is up 17 basis points today. So, so when you see that, you know, where does your mind go? Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, I never thought in the morning when I'm getting dressed, brushing my teeth, to go to work, that'd be so in tune to an inflation report. But but here we are. Um, yeah, I hang on, I hang on that report. Um, and yeah, that was kind of discouraging. But I think the Fed kind of said that... Um, it's not really a linear path down. It's going to be some ebbs and flows in that data, but it's just that the market hangs on every every word. You know, one minute they get a cooler inflation report. Okay, we're going to have three cuts in March. You know, then we get a hot one. And, oh man, we might not cut till the second half of the year. So it's just it can change so fast. And but that's back to what I was saying. It just makes things so hard to price. As so though if you have fifty basis points swing in the five year treasury over thirty days, like. How do you price? I mean, if you're trying to buy something, your debt cost just went up 50 basis points. You didn't even do anything. So yeah, it's the volatility is challenging. I, I, I just wish we could get some more stability, but I, I, I'm hoping, you know, as the year goes on, we will get there. I think one thing that's been pretty promising, just looking at our CNBS team, our buy side team, the buys and some of these um, CNBS tools, seeing some SAS videos, some conduit deals come to the market, really strong demand there. Um, most of these pools are oversubscribed from investor demand. You've seen spreads tighten considerably. Um, that's good. I think that's all good. We need the liquidity from CNBS. So if you're looking for positives, there's definitely one. Our spreads have tightened from the year on the mortgage side. So, so you know, if you're looking for positives, I think those are good things. But yeah, just be great to have some stability in the treasury market. That's for sure. No, I'm, I'm with you. And when I see that type of jump in a single day, where my mind goes is that you're probably going to be busier with your construction and bridge buckets than the core bucket at the moment, right? Because those two different buckets are priced over SOFR and SOFR hasn't changed at all. But the you know fixed rate five to 10 year pricing is what's going to be more challenging today. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll put groups back into that. Yeah. I wanted to do, wanted to do more of a floating rate product. I think SOFR is going to come down over time. The other thing that you, as you know, it's SOFR product provides this better prepayment flexibility. You know, you do a fixed rate deal, there's usually more call protection. So if you get a SOFR deal, 
you know, usually you're call protected for a short period of time. That allows borrowers flexibility to refinance or sell whatever they, they plan to do. So yeah, yeah, I think you'll see people gravitate more towards that capital. All right, Jeremy, really appreciate you doing this and taking the time to share everything that you're seeing in the in the life insurance company space. Hey, Brand, I didn't want to plug before I leave. I know you mentioned oh, you sure. got some, some new new, new uh, people that listen that they're new new to the real estate market. And I know we didn't touch on it, but just how I got in the industry, um, you know, I probably couldn't even spell real estate when I got out of college, but I but I had the opportunity to come to principal and do a nine-month internship and, um, you know, kind of fell in love with it. I worked on our private equity team and then got hired full-time after, after I graduated from college and on the private debt side here. But I'd encourage anybody that's, um, you know, interested in the industry, you know, take a look at our website. Uh, we, we still have this nine month co-op, um, it's a great opportunity for folks. We, we, um, we hire within private debt, private equity, our CMBS side, CMBS purchasing side. So we're always looking for, for, uh, new folks to come on, do internships. It's a great way to learn the business, you know, nine months. I was hesitant to do that when I was in college, but it really gives you an opportunity to get your get your feet wet, get involved, learn more about it, uh, be, being here a longer period of time. So just wanted to throw that out there for for folks that might be might be new to the industry. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, I'm very happy you shared that because I, I get the question all the time from people reaching out on LinkedIn or on Twitter about you know how did you get your start in commercial real estate? What should I be doing now that I'm in college and if I want to break into you know the finance world? I think principal would be a great opportunity for people because it's a a variety of different segments of the capital markets. You could start on the debt side. You can look at Mesopref. You could transition potentially to the equity side. You know, you're not going to be pigeonholed into just one uh, deal type or, or asset type. You're going to see a wide range. So I think it's a great place for anybody to start. Yeah, I know. No, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I just selfishly, I think private debt would be a great way to learn the business. You just you see so many different um, transactions. A lot of transactions at your desk, whether you finance them or not, and it just gives you an opportunity to think through how, how's the equity thinking through something on a construction loan or a, or a, or a bridge loan on a core plus or just a core loan. So you, you're getting to see how that all comes together working in the debt space. So just a plug for private debt anyway. I completely agree with you. And if somebody really wants to get a well-rounded view of commercial real estate, you know, everybody knows principal. So you guys are seeing all the deals that are coming to market. So they're going to be right in the center of everything that's happening. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. This is absolutely this is great. Thank you, Jeremy. Really appreciate it.